We're going to be in Colossians 4. Colossians 4, and if you have the book, it's page 1186. Colossians 4. Colossians 4, and I'm going to just read two verses, verses 5 and 6. When you find it, okay, would you all stand with me, please, while I read these two verses? If you want to follow along. You're going to have to start paying attention from the very beginning because it's, it's short. Okay? You don't have two minutes to get, you know, get your attention ready. Live wisely among those who are not Christians and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and effective so that you will have the right answer for everyone. Should I read it one more time? That was really short. Live wisely among those who are not Christians and make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be gracious and effective so that you will have the right answer for everyone. Let's pray. Father, these verses are short and they're very simple, but we seem to often have a hard time doing what they say. Father, I pray that you would teach us from your word this morning that we might be the light and the salt in this world, that this world, this hurting, broken world desperately needs. Help us to be more like Jesus because we've been here this morning, I pray. In his name, amen. You may sit down. How many of you have heard of Fred Phelps? that name ring a bell? All right. Fred Phelps. The day glow signs are strung out like rosary beads along the walkway to the church. Thank God for AIDS, reads one. Fags burn in hell says another. The Reverend Fred Phelps is tall and clad in a park that is zipped up so that all that shows are his eyes in a circle of red in the face. The talking coat begins to yell, Sodom, that's a sodomite church. The voice is hoarse and southern and preacherly all at once. It's a leper colony, unclean, unclean. 
the anti-homosexual crusaders start to shuffle off in that direction. Men, women, children, placards. It's 8.27 on a Sunday, on a sunny Sunday, and Fred Phelps and his followers have just begun their morning rounds on behalf of God, morality, and hate. We are in week 230 of the Siege of Topeka, otherwise known as the Great Gage Park Decency Drive, which is what the Reverend Fred Phelps, a disbarred lawyer, calls his four-year-old battle against homosexuality. Since June 1991, the Phelps family, Fred, wife Margie, nine of their 13 children and 40 grandchildren have held the ordinarily quiet Kansas capital in their manic thrall with constant picketing and a daily scattershot fax campaign so vicious and relentless that it has inspired a state statute against fax harassment. This community is being held hostage by a crazy man, says Russ, a local gay news producer, who says he was ousted by Phelps in 1991. Indeed, as Phelps proudly notes, when CNN shows videos of anti-gay protesters on segments discussing the Colorado Exclusionary Amendment against gay rights, now in the Supreme Court, it is Phelps, not anti-gay Coloradoans, whom they show. He's an icon of hate. He pickets funerals of AIDS victims. That's probably what he's most well known for, is picketing funerals of soldiers that have died in battle. He pickets gay rights marches and gay, right parade, gay pride parades. Hate is a Bible value, his bumper stickers proclaim. Phelps says this all started when he decided to clean up Gage Park, a local gay cruising spot, after one of his grandsons was propositioned there during a family bike ride. He began reading up on the subject and says he realized then that the entire culture had become infested with homosexualities. It was breathtaking how far down the road this country's gone, he says. And the more I found out, the more resolute I became. I want you to get this last part. Here he starts laughing. He finds in all of this a measure of pure hilarity. It's funny, says. Those skewed eyes glitter. I have such a good life. I can't imagine doing anything else. I go to sleep from pure joy most nights. In Colossians this morning, we're going to be talking about representing Jesus Christ in our world. As we come to the book of Colossians, and we're almost to the end of it, it's it's a beautiful book that's just enmeshed us in who Jesus is for us and who we are in Jesus. And and as we came to, that was in verses, chapters 1 and 2, and as we came to chapter 3, it, it transitioned to, then how this life is to be lived out as a result of who Christ is for us and who we are in Christ. And as we came to the end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, it talked about relationships in the family and relationships at work and 
and prayer. And this morning, it's talking about relationships out in the world where the rubber meets the road and the difference Christ should make where we are, out in the world, where we work, where we go to school, where we live. What difference should it make? I want to read a couple other little quotes for you. Religion is an insult to human dignity. With or without it, you have good people doing good things and evil people doing bad things. But for good people to do bad things, it takes religion. That was by Steven Weinberg. An anonymous quote says, Religion is as helpful as throwing a drowning man both ends of the rope. Voltaire, a famous atheist, said for 1,700 years the Christian sect has done nothing but harm. A more infamous man in the United States of America, some of you might recognize his name, Larry Flint, said, and I think this indicates a little bit the path that he ended up going, Religion has caused more harm than any other idea since the beginning of time. There's nothing good I can say about it. One of the funniest newspaper columnists that I know, Dave Barry, uh, does a great job writing. I'm not vouching for everything he writes, but he's, he's humorous. He says, the problem with writing about religion is that you run the risk of offending sincerely religious people. And then they come after you with machetes. <laughs> one more from one of our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson. Christianity is the most perverted system that ever shone on man. Not a bad reputation, would you say? That's what I call myself, a Christian. Why do I have such a bad reputation? Representing Jesus in our world, what does it look like or, or what should it look like? How do we come across? And I want you to just think about this as you think about yourself out in the world in the midst of your daily work, play, shopping, studying, teaching, whatever you do, wherever you go, wherever we are in the midst of the world that we live in, in which Jesus has called us to be light and salt, how do we come across? How do people see us? Like a Fred Phelps, angry, full of hate, unkind, arrogant, harsh, unloving. Isn't it interesting that the representative of our religion, the founder of our religion, he was called a friend of sinners. And they flocked to him. They loved him. They hung on to his every words. How do we come across? Well, these words in Colossians are really good for us. And I want we're not going to spend a lot of time, but I want, I'm just going to read them again. Actually, in the book, it's almost 
almost like a paraphrase. So I'm going to just then, we're going to kind of go through the literal words that are in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. And, and, and I hope for us they can just be an encouragement and a reminder about what it means to represent Jesus in the midst of a world that, that desperately needs Jesus, but so often doesn't see him. Live wisely among those who are not Christians. That's what this, these two little verses are about. Live wisely among those, literally says, who are outside, who are outside of Christ, who are outside of the church. Those who are looking in and maybe don't want to come in because of, they see it, because of what they see. It says, walk wisely among them. Walk in wisdom. Live wisely among them and make the most of every opportunity. Literally what it says, and it's, it's a very uh, graphic phrase, it says, redeeming the time, literally, purchasing up the time by the paying of a price. It's the same word, redeeming, here that is used of the redemption that Christ purchases for us, that he purchased for us on the cross by the shedding of his own blood, by his substitutionary death on the cross, in the same way that Christ redeemed us, purchased our salvation through the payment of his blood on the cross, it says we are to live wisely among those that we wander amongst and live amongst and work among, do school among. We're to, we're to live among them purchasing the time we have with them by the payment of some price. The question we're going to ask is, what is that price? I think it's the answer is in verse 6. Our conversation being gracious and effective so that you will have the right answer for everyone. Literally, what it says there is, our, conversa- our, our words being with grace and seasoned with salt. That's literally what it says. Our speech being with grace and seasoned with salt so that we will know how to answer everyone. Is that us? Walking wisely, redeeming the time, our words gracious, seasoned with salt all the time so that we will know how to answer everyone and so people will be drawn to Christ. Let's go over it really quickly. Verse 5. Walking in wisdom among those who are outside. You know, that's not easy to do, is it? Because sometimes those who are outside really disagree with what we believe, right? And sometimes they're very vocal about it and they're very strong about it. This is the question I want you to think about this morning. How do we stand for the truth and do it with Christ's wisdom and Christ's love? See, what it's talking about in Colossians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6 is it talks about walking in wisdom or walking wisely among those who are outside. It's not talking about compromise. It's not talking about the popular word that's out in the world today, and that's tolerance. We're to be tolerant, but the word out in the world today, tolerance means that if you're going to be tolerant, 
everything is the same. I mean, when I'm called, called to be tolerant out in the world, that means I have to say that what you believe is exactly equal and of importance and value as what I believe. And what that means is that I say that all truth is subjective, that everything's the same, that there is truth. And that's not true. Jesus said, I am an option, and one of the ways of truth, that's not what he said. He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through me. That sounds really intolerant. But it's the truth. And that truth, according to Colossians 4, 5, and 6, can be lived in love. And we can walk through life believing that truth and clinging to that truth with wisdom. How do we do that? By purchasing the time that we have with people we walk amongst by the paying of a price. See, what this is calling us to isn't compromise because what the world needs is Jesus. Do you believe that? I believe that. I mean, we live in the midst of a broken and hurting and bound world that needs Jesus. And the answer to people's problems and brokenness and pain and, and addictions isn't just saying, oh, I, I love you and it'll be okay and just whatever works for you. Whatever works for anyone according to the word of God, it's Jesus. Because Jesus is the one who has brought us back into relationship with God through the purchasing of us on the cross through the payment, of a, payment, payment for our sins on the cross through the shedding of his blood. Jesus is the one who bridges the gap between us and God and, and enables us to have true joy and true peace and true hope and true life. We can't compromise that. But how do we how do we exist in a world that's so full of all different kinds of ways of thinking, thinking that believes the exact opposite of what I believe, and to walk amongst them with love and wisdom? It's that last little phrase that says, by purchasing the time, redeeming the time. How do we do that? How do we, what is the price we pay? Like I said, I think the answer is in verse 6. The answer is in verse 6, which says, let your words, your speech, always, that's a really important word, we don't see it here, but it's in the text, always be with grace. What does that mean? We all know what grace means, I think. Grace means that we get what we don't deserve, by Jesus getting what we did deserve. That's grace. Jesus, and again, one of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians 5.21, God made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to become sin for me, 
so that in him I might become the righteousness of God. I get Jesus' righteousness, what I don't deserve, and Jesus got my sin as he hung on the cross as my substitute. What I do deserve, he got it, that I might get what I don't deserve. That's grace. And that's what our words are to be giving other people. Grace, what they don't deserve. And it's so often what we don't do and why there's such conflict and such such an inability for us to get along with people that we're so different from is because we can't give people what they don't deserve. We want to rebut and we want to defend and we want to, instead of giving them what they don't deserve. As it says in Proverbs, a gentle answer turns away wrath. It's about time we learned that we don't need to defend God. And that defending and arguing isn't going to draw anybody to Jesus. Grace will. I was sharing this with somebody the other day, and you can read through the whole Gospels. I would encourage you to go home this afternoon and read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and see if you can prove me wrong, okay? I want you to read through the Gospels and tell me how many times Jesus called someone a sinner. Anybody have any idea? Anybody want to take a guess and be really embarrassed? You know, I embarrassed Scott last week. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I don't believe he ever did. But I've only run, read him probably a hundred times, so I might have missed it, you know. There's only one time I really remember where the woman who was caught in adultery and Jesus and, and the religious leaders brought brought her to Jesus to to have her stoned and thought they had him between a rock and a hard place. And he said, The one who was out without sin cast the first stone. And they all left and left Jesus to cast the first stone, right? Because he was without sin. And yet, after they all left, he looked at her and said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Jesus wasn't compromising on sin, but this is the point. In John three seventeen, the verse right after the most famous verse in the Bible, it says, for the Son of Man came not to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved and I and I'm not sure where Fred Phelps gets his information that seems to be so focused on condemnation I mean I understand because I grew up in that environment and spent most of my life condemning everyone that I could But the Son of Man came not to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. And as he was while he walked this world, I believe that's what Colossians 4 5 is, and 6 is calling us to, to grace. To so demonstrate and reflect the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ 
giving people what they don't deserve so that by God's grace and love and kindness, they might be drawn to see who they are because condemnation never, it never did it for me, condemnation never convicts us genuinely of sin. It doesn't. As it says in Romans 7, it drives us to want to sin. (laughs) That's what it did for me. But grace, and this is what happened as Jesus walked the earth and as he lived among them without sin and he showed grace as a friend of sinners, people were drawn to him. They were convicted of their sin and they were drawn to him as a savior. Grace, giving people what they don't deserve. Do we do that with our speech as we walk among people who might be honoring might be combative, might believe everything the opposite of what we believe. It's grace that will draw them. Number one, words that are with grace and words that are seasoned with salt. That's literally what it says, the word they translate here in the book, effective. I think words that are effective because they're seasoned with salt. And I think simply what it means, and it's the point of salt, or one of the main points of salt, is that it makes things palatable. Right? That's why we season things with salt is because without salt, they wouldn't taste as good. And that's the way our words are to be gracious, giving people what they don't deserve, not responding back a tit for a tat with words that are seasoned with salt, that are, that are palatable. Words that are um, peacemaking words. Words that are sensitive words. The point is, and I think to put these two verses together, is that such a life will be costly. I think that's the cost. As we purchase the time by the paying of a price to live wisely among people, I think it's, that's the cost. It's purchased at the expense of our pride of our rights, of our way, our selfishness, of our very selves. It's like, it's like it says in Philippians. Let me just read it really quickly. It says, Your attitude in Philippians 2.5 should be the same that Jesus Christ had. Though he was God, he did not demand and cling to his rights as God. He made himself nothing. He took the humble position of a slave and appeared in human form. And in human form, he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. That's costly. It cost our Lord Jesus Christ his life to give us what we don't deserve. Salvation. Righteousness. A relationship with God. And I believe that's exactly what it's talking about in Colossians 4, 5, and 6 is that if we want to walk among people as Christ walked among people and see people's lives drawn to Christ. It's going to be as we count the cost ourselves and instead of us having to be right and instead of us having to defend ourselves, instead of us having to have the last word, we come to people with grace. And words that are seasoned with salt so that people might be attracted to the greatest friend that sinners have ever had. Now, how is such a life possible? 
Um, it's hard, isn't it? I mean, it's 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 hard. I mean, that's uh, <laughs> um, it's hard to bite our tongues, right? <laughs> it's hard not to stand up for what is true, unless you've forgotten what truth is, and that's a whole different matter. Remember, we're not compromising truth; we're speaking the truth in love, as Christ is. That's hard. I mean, let me just give you a couple more quotes here. These quotes are good for me because they really hit at what we aren't often and what we need to be. This is from one of your favorite authors, one of my favorite authors, Mark Twain. The church is always trying to get other people to reform. It might not be a bad idea to reform itself a little by way of example. That's true. Voltaire again. Of all religions, Christian Christianity is without a doubt the one that should inspire tolerance the most. And it's true. Although up to now, the Christians have been the most intolerant of all men. Wow. The trouble with born-again Christians is that they are an even bigger pain the second time around. <laughs> It's kind of uh, one hits at the heart. This is by one of the best artists of all time, maybe, Vincent Van Gogh. I am no friend of present-day Christianity, though its founder was sublime. A lot of people attracted to Jesus that aren't so attracted. <laughs> to those of us who call ourselves his followers. And maybe one of the most famous rock stars of all time said, Christianity will go, it will vanish and shrink. Well, he's definitely wrong that. Jesus was all right, but his disciples were thick and ordinary. It's them twisting it that ruins it for me. Y'all want to know who said that, don't you? Yeah, maybe I'll tell you someday. was John Lennon. So how do we walk in such wisdom? Pick up your Bibles, and we're just going to do a couple verse review of Colossians, because it's all in the book of Colossians, and I'd encourage you to go back and read chapters 1 and 2, because Colossians 1 and 2 just hold forth before us Jesus. And the Bible tells us that our wisdom is Jesus. Jesus is wisdom, and Jesus is our wisdom. Look at Colossians 2. I'm going to read verses 1 to 5 quickly. I want you to know how much I have agonized for you and for the church at Laodicea and many other friends who have never known me personally. My goal is that they will be encouraged and knit together by strong ties of love. I want them to have full confidence because they have complete understanding of God's secret plan, which is Christ himself. Look at verse 3. In him lie hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's our wisdom. We don't have to go thinking, I mean, how do I walk in wisdom? How do I do it? I mean, how, how do I walk? How do I live this way? It's saying, walk in Christ. He's our wisdom. And in verses 1 through 5 of Colossians 
2 and verses 6 through 10, if I were to summarize it, I'd say, number one, it's by understanding that Christ is our wisdom and imitating that. Imitate him. Understand. Read about Jesus. Look at who he is. See how he lived and imitate him. But the second, pick up at verse 6. It's even better than that. And now, just as you accepted Christ Jesus as your Lord, you must continue to live in obedience to him. It says, let your roots grow down into him. I love this passage. And draw nourishment from him. He's our wisdom. Let your roots grow down deep into Jesus. Drop your nourishment from him. Spend time with Jesus. And so you will grow in faith, strong and vigorous in the truth you were taught your lives will overflow with thanksgiving for all he has done. Don't let anyone lead you astray with empty philosophy and high-sounding nonsense that come from human thinking and from the evil powers of this world and not from Christ. You don't have to read some other book on 10 steps to become wise. It's all in Christ. Look at, because in verse 9 it says, for in Christ... The fullness of God lives in a human body and you are complete through your union with Christ. And that's how we can walk in wisdom. It's not only by enmeshing ourselves and immersing ourselves in this book and and seeing who Christ is and understanding him, but it's understanding our union with him, that we're one with him. And then as we spend time with him, his very nature is in us and can throb through us and and thrive through us so that it's Christ that overflows through us. It, It doesn't have to be us trying to figure out how to crank out in this world what we need to be. It's spending time with Jesus. You know, when Jesus walked walked among people on the face of this earth, it's wonderful the things they said about him. Well, not the things that the religious leaders said about him. They didn't have anything nice to say about him. But just the everyday, ordinary, hurting, broken people, as they listened to Jesus, they said, wow, nobody's ever talked like this. His words are so gracious. And there was such authority. And when we come to the book of Acts, after Jesus died and rose from the grave and ascended to heaven and the Holy Spirit came, it's interesting that people began to say the same thing then about his followers. In Acts chapter 4, as the people and even the religious leaders noticed, it says the boldness, the confidence of Peter and John, they said, wow, it's obvious they've been with Jesus. As we come to Acts chapter 6 and and Stephen, it says, as people listened to him as he was debating, they were amazed by the power with, with, with which he spoke and the wonderful wisdom of his words. Men who spent time with Jesus. I'm going to end by a couple more quotes and wrap it up. What does it mean then? How can we walk among this world 
as Christ did. An anonymous quote says, to listen to some devout people, one would imagine that God never laughs. That to be devout and holy, you have to be always serious. Reminds me of a, this just came to my mind, it reminds me of a quote, something that a lady came up to praying Hyde, who was just a godly, holy man. Wonderful story about how he prayed. He asked God, that God would give him one person a day as he prayed and as he shared Christ with them. He saw in the course of a year 400 people come to Christ as he prayed for them. He was also called Camel Knees Hyde because he spent so much time in prayer. The next year he prayed for two people a day and the year after that four people a day and God just as he prayed, so he was a godly, holy people and this kind of sophisticated lady came up to him one, one time kind of mocking him and says, so I assume that People that laugh and have fun can't go to heaven. And he looked at her and he says, I don't know how anybody could go to heaven without laughing and having fun. (laughs) Evangelical Christianity, as everyone knows, is founded upon hate. As the Christianity of Christ was founded upon love. Man, isn't it amazing how the world sees us so different than our founder? Authentic Christianity never destroys what is good. It makes it grow, transfigures it, and enriches it. That's the way it should be, right? Henry Ward Beecher said, The test of Christian character should be that a man is a joy-bearing agent in the world. One more. It's the duty of Christians to make religion lovely. He who makes religion unlovely is more an infidel than he if he simply denies the doctrines of Christianity. And I think that kind of sums up what Colossians 4, 5, and 6 is saying. Does our presence in the world, does it make things lovely? Does it? I mean, there's a lot in this book about sin. And there's a lot in this book about how men are separated from God and the consequences of that and the horrible state our world is in as a result of that. I am not downplaying that at all because we live in a desperately broken and hurting and sinful world that needs and only can find hope in Jesus. But how are they going to find him? If the people that represent him are so crotchety and hard to get along with and uncaring and unkind and unloving are the ones who represent him. Brothers and sisters, we need to live amongst our neighbors and fellow workers and fellow students as Christ lived among the people he walked among. We need to live like Jesus. He's our wisdom. Immerse ourselves in him. Let his nature flow through us as we spend time with him so that our words are gracious. Our words are palatable. Our lives are lovely so that people will see Jesus and they'll be drawn to him and they'll be changed.
Let's pray. Father, I just pray that you would draw our hearts to want to spend time with Jesus. Father, give us a longing to spend time with Jesus so that people will be able to tell by the way we talk, by the way we live, by the way we love. In Jesus' name, amen.